Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts and on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. This series provides an opportunity to hear directly from some of our top scholars to inform the discussion on COVID-19 as we begin the complex task of reopening the country while protecting the health of our most vulnerable citizens. The institution is dedicated to finding solutions to the many difficult challenges ahead. Today we'll be discussing globalism and looking at how different countries dealt together as well as independently with a virus that knows no boundaries. I want to remind everybody that we'll be taking audience questions and encourage you to submit those questions using the tab at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Hoover Senior Fellow Russell Berman. Russell recently returned to Hoover from the U.S. State Department where he served as a senior advisor on the policy planning staff. He is the Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University, as well as a member of both the Department of German Studies and the Department of Comparative Literature at Stanford. Russell, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Happy to do this, Tom. Great. Having just returned from the State Department, in what ways have you seen this pandemic impact international relations? The um, pandemic uh, has uh, affected countries around the world, also affected the international cooperation. The, um, what strikes me is that uh, as, the, um, as the virus spread originally from China, then Iran, then Italy, and then throughout Europe, eventually reaching the United States, um, the, uh, the, the, the dynamic has been one in which individual nation states have responded uh, to, the, to the crisis, to their public uh, health crisis, uh, one by one. Uh, the nature of the sponsors has varied, the speed has varied, the politics around it has varied, but it's really been a matter of um, uh, executive authorities in the different nations taking steps rather than international organizations taking the lead. Interesting. Just one more question on our State Department. I would imagine our State Department is inundated with the task of how to manage international relations in this highly fluid and dynamic political setting. Are they up to the task? I have no doubt that our State Department is up to the task. A lot of dedicated patriotic people who work in uh, the Harry S. Truman Building in, the, uh, in Washington, as well as around the world in our embassies. It's an enormous challenge though. Uh, uh, the State Department is a bureaucracy and in a certain sense, a, a business organization. Uh, and like other businesses, uh, there's uh, extraordinary restrictions on who can go into buildings when, this impinges on conversations, it impinges on, on collaboration, the ability of our diplomats overseas to meet one-on-one -on -one with government officials in other countries is also constrained. Nonetheless, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the work of our foreign policy will proceed. Got it. I want to pick up on something you mentioned in your kind of introductory comments. And uh, with the exception of Great Britain, one might have expected the policy reactions to the virus uh, to have been coordinated through the institutions of the European Union. Um, is, this a is this a case or did Europe's nation states fashion their own responses? Each nation state responded one by one as the crisis unfolded in, uh, in the respective countries. Uh, Italy, of course, was hit very, very hard. Uh, Spain was hit very hard. Um, uh, and, and other countries as well, uh, France. Um, 
but uh, across Europe, uh, countries faced the pandemic, and in each country, the government had to initiate its only res- its own response to the the public hygiene uh, uh, crisis, the public health crisis. Uh, in terms of the politics, the political structures, the the character of the of the country, some countries are are small and centralized. Uh, some countries are large and centralized, like France, and some countries are are federal, like the United States, with significant distribution of power between a central government and regional or state governments, like Germany. And this meant uh, different kind of responses. Uh, in different countries. And of course, the, the, there are these different political institutions because countries have different traditions, cultures, yeah. characters. Yeah. Let's go back to the uh, institutions of the European community. Was there any attempt to express leadership uh, for the nation states by the institutions of uh, the European Union? Uh, was there any attempt to express? Yeah. Uh, certainly not initially. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the European Union was very, very slow to get started. Uh, it, it was, the, it was the, uh, the, the prime minister of Italy. It was the, the uh, chancellor in Austria. It was the, uh, the leadership in Hungary or in Germany or in France that, that made decisions, sometimes right decisions and sometimes wrong decisions. Huh? Yeah. Uh, but there was no, no, uh, no significant coordination on the European level. Right. Where the European uh, response has uh, begun to kick in is uh, not in the in uh, with regard to the public health emergency, but with regard to structure of responses to the uh, the pending economic consequences, yep. uh, uh, as well as to the reopening of borders that European countries closed. It was European countries one by one that closed their borders, that broke the Schengen zone rule of open yep. borders, or that began to close down um, international flights. Uh, those are national decisions. I think there's a lesson here that in the face of a crisis, it's democratically elected leadership that is going to be called upon to act rather than international organizations, which are at uh, several steps removed from democratic legitimation. Got it. Um, let me follow up again on, on something you said earlier. The, the restriction or the reactions in the United States to the virus have been characterized by some as being uncoordinated and conflictual. Conflictual, you know, as we've seen national, state, and local leaders in many cases going very in very separate directions. I know that many, if not most, of the nation states in Europe have a have a federal structure like the U.S. How have the policy responses in these nations looked compared to the ones in the U.S.? Um, gee, a few points. One is. Uh, uh, I think everybody, wherever you are in the political spectrum, would agree that we've had a very polarized uh, um, journalistic culture well before before COVID. And in my view, uh, as I read the European press, I see the reporting, uh, the American reporting on our response as very much a function of that polarization rather than uh, giving a fair comparison in contrast with what's going on in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, I think mistakes have been made in all countries uh, because of the novelty of this. Anybody who says they knew what what should be done before this happened is is fooling us. Uh, uh, people were scrambling for the right answers, uh, and some got got them. And I think what the right answer is is still unfolding. Now, uh, the um, 
what's 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 characterized that sometimes is the lack of coordination in the United States because of differences between policy in Washington and policy in Albany or Sacramento or other state capitals. And where I am now in California, actually, it goes down to the county level. Uh, Governor Newsom announced uh, some lightening up of restrictions, but said the counties can diverge from that. Um, uh, is this good or is this bad? Or doesn't, isn't this a proper recognition of the diversity of living situations, the diversity of demographies? There are some densely low populated areas, some less densely populated areas. This is something that we can talk about at length. Uh, to answer your question directly, though, that I saw, I saw the same phenomenon in Germany, uh, sure. although, although, the, uh, although the German and the American cases are often treated as, uh, as um, opposites in the, in, the, in the press reporting. On this point, at least, there's an awful lot of similarity. Germany is the Federal Republic of Germany. It is composed of 16 individual Länder, we would say states. Um, and uh, the, the, the minister presidents, uh, the governors of those states, have considerable authority in this kind of situation. The chancellor, Chancellor Merkel, tries to coordinate, but uh, these, the states are going in, in different directions. Bavaria mm -hmm. announced restrictions sooner than any other state. Uh, now, as Germany believes that it's coming out of the of the other side and, and is looking ahead toward a lightening of the, of the lockdown. Uh, we see um, uh, in, the, in the northeast of Germany, in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, the restaurants are already open uh, for, for, for in-house service. Uh, mm -hmm. In um, other parts of Germany, further to the west, I know that stores are opening up but with limited occupancy and uh, only with um, um, partial service available. So it's, it's, it, it varies uh, very much the way it varies in the United States as well. Uh, and I don't think variation is necessarily wrong or a sign of lack of coordination. Has Germany seen the kind of uh, civil or political unrest that we've seen in the United States over some of the lockdowns and policies adopted by some of the governors? Yeah, you know, it's strange. I think Germany did pretty well initially uh, in terms of acceptance of the, um, of the, of, of the restrictions. Uh, uh, living up to the expectations that they have a disciplined population, but yeah. uh, just this just this weekend there were there were there were significant uh, demonstrations against uh, the restrictions in um, many German cities in Berlin, in Stuttgart, in Cologne. Those are the ones that I remember from the press. And in contrast, the United States, where you have had a you know, relatively small numbers, I think, demonstrating 50, 100, maybe. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the German press was reporting of 1,000 at these demonstrations with, uh, with um, uh, photographs indicating that um, uh, social distancing was not, was not being observed. Yeah. Um, uh, there's another aspect of this uh, that uh, came up in Germany, interestingly, uh, uh, and that is... Um, the, the question of religious freedom. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's pretty clear why we do social distancing and why we limit the size of groups. Uh, uh, it's why when I go shopping in the grocery store, uh, I have to wait in line uh, and uh, there's a limited number of people who can enter them. Why one couldn't have a similar organization with regard to church attendance is unclear. And in yeah. fact, in Germany, there was a, uh, a case brought by a, um, by a local Muslim group uh, uh, calling for um, 
uh, permission to have Ramadan par- prayers uh, uh, while accepting social distancing. And uh, the local court, as I understand, uh, uh, granted that. I don't think, I think it's making its way up the, the food chain, though. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Germans, um, uh, Germans also take their rights very seriously. And uh, uh, ha- some have raised doubts that there hasn't been sufficient respect for basic rights guaranteed by their constitution, including freedom of religion. Got it. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Russell Berman. Uh, Russell, let's, let's just go around the countries of Europe. I know that you, you have some statistics that you use to judge the effectiveness of the various policies that have been used across Europe to confront the COVID virus. Could you kind of share those with us and maybe just give an off-the-cuff interpretation of why you think some countries are doing better than others? Uh, sure. Uh, the, um, uh, the People can find really interesting stats at the Johns Hopkins website. This is the gold standard for information of, uh, of uh, this Johns Hopkins COVID uh, Resource Center, I guess it's called. Um, you know, you can, you can compare the effectiveness in different ways. Uh, to say that the United States has the most uh, uh, infected cases doesn't really mean much because the United States is a really big country. Of course, we're going to have more than, than Canada. Of course, we're going to have more than, uh, than, uh, than Germany. Uh, the United States is more than three times the size of Germany. The issue really is uh, the, um, the cases, um, the cases uh, per capita that is relative to the size of the population or not in cases. It's not clear that we're catching them. That's a function of how widespread the testing is. So no metric is perfect, but I think that the best metric is COVID deaths per size of population, and it's measured by per 100,000. So let me give you some stats as to where we are and where uh, some of the countries in Europe are. Um, uh, so COVID deaths per 100,000. Uh, Belgium was above, above 75. Uh, Spain at 56. Italy at 50. The UK at 48, France at 39, uh, Netherlands 31, and only then do we get to the US, which is 24. So we're doing better if that's the metric than all those other countries. Uh, Germany is doing better than the United States with nine per uh, 100,000. Uh, now, what's at stake here? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. It, the, uh, how this is playing out in different countries may reflect different different phenomena. Um, one takeaway for me is that there are many people who look at this um, uh, this, this pandemic and make the argument: Well, if we only had a European-style healthcare system, the United States would be doing a whole lot better. Well, in fact, in terms of deaths per hundred thousand. The United States is doing a whole lot better than the UK with its national health system, and it's doing a whole lot better than than France, which has a very, very good hospital system. So part of it has to do with the political management of the respective respective situation. I know there's also been a lot of attention to the Swedish model. Uh, Sweden did not pursue the uh, rigorous lockdown, but instead uh, went for what's been called herd immunity. Uh, and uh, 
but in terms of uh, COVID fatalities per size of population, Sweden has done worse than us. So it's, it's accepted a greater rate of deaths. Some may argue that one has to accept that, uh, but that's a, that's a different kind of policy choice. Interesting. Uh, I have another question. Uh, I want to take a question from the audience, but first I want to remind everybody that you're listening to Russell Berman, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at our website, hoover.org. Uh, Russell, Sergio asked the following question. How do you see the role for the UN and the WHO in the future? Do you see changes for dealing with the future menace for new pandemics? Uh, what will be the path forward for a new and more efficient international organization to confront the pandemic threats? You know, that's a, that, that's, that's a good question and it's a tough question. Uh, I think a lesson uh, from this uh, pandemic is that international organizations generally failed. Uh, the United Nations itself in its main bodies, the, the General Assembly and the Security Council have really been absent without leave. Uh, they've, they've, they've done nothing. Now, the WHO is uh, uh, close to the UN, uh, but uh, there's been a lot of um, criticism of the WHO and the way that its leadership was uh, 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 too close to the, uh, to the uh, position of the, uh, of the Chinese government. Uh, well into uh, late January, the WHO was repeating the Chinese government's line that human uh, that human to human contact was not taking place or was unlikely. That is, the message from the WHO was unfortunately uh, wrong, and delayed alerting the 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 world to the uh, the danger of this um, of this pandemic. Some argue that uh, a global pandemic requires a global response. I think what we've seen empirically is that a an existential crisis to countries elicits a vibrant national response, at least in democratic countries, unlike in China. The Chinese government in, in Beijing was prepared to, to delay announcing this, or the Chinese uh, authorities in Wuhan were afraid of the central government and therefore hid it. We don't know that story yet fully. But we do know that is that as, um, as countries in the democratic world became aware of the virulence of the virus and the, and the, uh, the danger of the, the disease, uh, they, they tried to act um, firmly. Um, whether all decisions were made in the, um, it, with, with the right alacrity and with the, with the right focus, I'm sure the answer is no. I'm sure people made mistakes, but people acted. Uh, now, uh, I think the WHO has to uh, try to demonstrate that it can re uh, that it can regain its um, its independence uh, from from Chinese influence. Uh, I think we have to be concerned that the Chinese are exercising their influence in international organizations um, in a deleterious character. So that's where I think uh, uh, focus should be placed. Interesting. Uh, Russell, whenever we do these briefings, we always get a lot of questions about China. Uh, John and Cynthia have a couple of questions. Let me try to combine them in the following way. Uh, and let me just say that prior to the COVID-19 threat, there, was growing, there were growing tensions between the U.S. and China anyway, over trade, intellectual property, uh, military adventurism, etc. Uh, has the pandemic exasperated uh, that 
that tension? And if so, how? And then talk a little bit about how this has changed uh, the relationship between China and the European countries. The, um, that's a great question. I mean, it's really, it's really a question about the past half century. Um, uh, in the 1970s, we had the Nixon in China moment and the opening of China. Uh, then uh, this was accelerated during the 1990s, uh, 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 during the uh, Clinton years, leading to the 2001 accession of China to the World Trade Organization. People believed that China's entry into the uh, world capitalist system would lead to economic liberalization in China as well as political liberalization. People thought that a growing middle class would demand freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and that the dictatorial character of the Chinese re, uh, government would, 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 would change, perhaps analogous to what people imagined was happening in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, that did not take place. Uh, uh, Western companies doing business in China have found themselves uh, subject to different kinds of extortion. As you've mentioned, Tom, uh, Chinese military activity in the South China Sea became worrisome to the neighbors there, as well as the uh, repression of the Muslims in, uh, in, um, in Northwest China and other religious groups, Christians in, uh, in China, Lord only knows, are under, under, under pressure. Uh, uh, President Trump was the first American leader really to call this out, uh, but um, uh, this was after there was growing um, uh, disappointment with the development in, uh, in, in China. Nonetheless, during the first couple of years uh, of uh, the Trump administration, uh, as people recall, he was busy trying to um, uh, fashion a trade deal with China. I think that recognized the fact that as much as we may um, be critical of aspects of the Chinese government, China's a big country, it's a big economy, it's a big part of the world economy. Uh, and it's gonna be hard just to walk away from it, hence President Trump's efforts to um, maintain a working relationship with Xi, with uh, uh, Secretary Xi, he's the secretary of the Communist Party, uh, uh, and, um, and, to, and to get to that trade deal. That may still happen, my sense is that the conversation has changed significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have a discussion in the United States between um, China hawks who, uh, who argue for a significant decoupling from the Chinese economy. This means moving supply chains out of China, um, uh, especially critical um, um, material. We should not be a, relying on penicillin production in China, for example. We need that, we need that produced elsewhere. And then China doves, but China doves aren't pro-China anymore. China doves would be ones who would argue, listen, China's a big place. We have to still cooperate and collaborate, but let's not be naive. Right? These are bad guys who run this place. They gave us this virus. They, they hit it. They, they, whether they expected to benefit it from it uh, economically, we can't determine, but there's no statistic coming out of China that we can trust. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's changed. Now, uh, where will, where will our, um, our transatlantic allies in Europe be on this? Really great question. Uh, the, um, uh, the, historically, I mean, in the past 10, 20 years, uh, the Europeans, you know, with some degree of differentiation among the different European countries, have been eager to strike deals with 
regimes that we now regard as um, as competitors with uh, with Putinist Russia and with uh, and with China. Uh, the Europeans will be critical of human rights abuses, uh, but they're nonetheless um, uh, eager to to cut those deals. Um, at this point, that may be changing. Uh, some of Chinese behavior has uh, has, um, uh, has 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 dampened uh, European enthusiasm. I just saw an, an article today about a poll in Germany that said now that less than 10% of Germans want a, um, uh, a, a positive relationship with, with China. That's a breathtaking shift from where, China, where, where the results were just uh, three or four months ago. Three or four months ago, Germans were saying um, they trust China more than Russia and Russia more than the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. That's shifted. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, the the mood in um, in uh, in China, excuse me, in in Europe uh, uh, may change. I think that a goal of American foreign policy ought to be to us to to try to build a um, uh, a uh, a collaboration with the European Union in in confronting China on the range of issues that that are important to us. Well, Freddie asked that question. You, you brought it up as an issue. I'll, I'll, I'll push on a little bit further. He asked, in a post-COVID-19 world, do you see a unified Western country response to China's, China's handling of the health outcome uh, crisis? Uh, yeah, um, I wish. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think this is the challenge for the West. Um, uh, I think uh, um, we... There are other disputes. There are legitimate trade disputes between the United States and, and Western Europe as well. And that has, to, that has to get worked out. Although that's right now taking a back seat because of this, uh, this, this crisis atmosphere. Um, uh, I would argue for a, um, uh, a, a US foreign policy that would try to persuade the European Union to get on board with us mm -hmm. uh, on the range of issues with um, with, uh, that, that faces with China. How to persuade the European Union is, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a 500 page novel. That's uh, why we have diplomats. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, think, uh, I think what we, something I worked on when I was in, at State was, uh, how can we fashion an effective uh, foreign policy with the European Union after Brexit? So I'm getting a little bit away from COVID, but this enters into it. Uh, and, uh, historically, the UK, when it was a member of the European Union, was often very aligned with US positions on a range right. of issues. Not always, not 100%, but it was our gateway into the EU. The UK no longer votes in the EU. It's a different EU now. Yeah. And people should watch that are going to change within the EU. And US diplomacy should pay close attention to and I think that with a nimble and astute and insightful um, uh, focus on what is going on in um, uh, Europe, we may be able to see, succeed in that. On the other hand, um, parts of the European economy are very dependent on exports to, uh, to yeah. China. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what's at stake. Yeah. Rakesh asked an interesting question, and I'm going to add, add an ending on it to make it even more hard on you. Uh, he, he asked, will the nation state management of COVID-19 weakened global institutions for a long time to come as they have lost a lot of their credibility and effectiveness 
Let me ask you very directly about the European Union. Great Britain left. Uh, if the EU leadership wasn't helpful in confronting this crisis, is, is that a threat to the viability of the EU going forward? Well, I could just leave it with a yes and move on to the next question, but let me elaborate. Um, uh, listen, I think that uh, the, the lesson, the takeaway lesson is that nation states are important uh, and that uh, the um, uh, nation states have always been important and their importance in responding to the crisis is, uh, is evidence of their continued vitality. Uh, with regard to the leadership in the EU, now I'm thinking in particularly of the political leadership in France and Germany. They tend to talk a strong talk about multilateralism, which is often intended as a criticism of the Trump administration. But in fact, when France or Germany is faced with a political issue, a policy issue, um, in defense of its own national interest against European or transatlantic concerns, they will pursue their national interest, uh, even while they talk multilateralism. Uh, the Germans have pursued the Nord Stream 2 pipeline despite objection to it from their European neighbors. The French government is very protective of its national defense industry. So even before COVID, anybody watching closely know that the European multilateralists are also nationalists at the same time. Yeah. This became even clearer now in COVID. So, you know, one question is, you know, real international organizations like the UN and the WHO, I don't say they have no role to play, but people should ratchet down their expectations. If there are crises, uh, it's going to be your it's going to be your elected government that responds to it, not not a not a distant bureaucrat. Um, I, I think the WHO can could play a role. Uh, when we cite stats, for example, on um, deaths per hundred thousand, I'm not even sure that people are counting deaths the same way. If someone dies of uh, of cancer who also has COVID, is that a cancer death or a COVID death? I don't think it's a national norm, an international norm for that. That's a role for the WHO. Or the WHO could, could play a role in maintaining um, inoculations against all sorts of other diseases while we have these lockdowns. There's a big danger of those diseases re re returning. Now, the EU is not an international organization in exactly the same way as the, as the UN, but I think we can talk about it in, the, in response to the same question. Uh, EU and the Eurozone are gonna both face enormous challenges right now. Uh, there was a lot of disappointment in uh, Southern Europe with the lack and the tardiness of the EU's response. Um, you may have read um, the reports of um, Italians under lockdown going out into their balconies to sing together. And this yeah. is a sign of the vitality of Italian culture. Well, my friends in Italy tell me that what they were often thinking, singing was the Italian national anthem. Um, uh, uh, as, 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 as a sign of uh, their, their shared nationality. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, uh, the, the, um, the, the, there was the, the slowness of the EU's response. At one point, Funderlein, uh, uh, in fact, even apologized, I believe, to the Italians for the slowness of the response. The response, more germane and more material, is the um, uh, developments of a European and EU response to the uh, the coming uh, economic devastation to the recession um, after after 2008 people remember there was you know significant uh, unemployment in southern Europe uh, and there was a lot of dispute over whether 
how much Northern Europe would really contribute to solving Southern Europe's problems? And the answer was not a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that, that seems, to be, seems to be playing out again, uh, both with regard to the European Union and with regard to the, Europe, uh, the uh, European Central Bank. The European Central Bank uh, took some very modest steps toward, um, um, uh, ex to, toward, toward supporting national governments in the South through bond purchases on the secondary market. Um, the, uh, the German Constitutional Court has just called that into question. Yeah. Now, this sounds very geeky and very into, into, the, into, the, into the weeds, but what's at stake there is the German Const Constitutional Court defending the national interest of Germany against redistrib redistribution from north to south. And, but if, if, the, if the south's problems aren't solved, you're going yeah. to find big, big tensions within the EU or departures from the Eurozone. Yeah. Well, let's end on a, on a big uh, thought question. This has to do with global, globalization. Uh, I mean, in some sense, we've been focusing on globalizing the world since World War II with the GATS and the EUs and the tariff and trade agreements. And uh, we all seem to agree that that was the way to go. Uh, do we still agree about that? And, and what do you see to the globalization project going forward? I think the globalization pro process is um, uh, you know, sort of an interesting story from the late 20th century. Uh, uh, globalization uh, faced big challenges first at 9/11, faced it again in 2008 with responses to immigration in the mid uh, in, the, in the in the middle of this past past century. Um, it's not the case that international trade is going to end. It's not the case that there's going to be uh, uh, international exchange of uh, goods, services, ideas will end. But I think that the giddiness with which globalization was pursued as a kind of um, a silly end of history is just over. Uh, and that uh, nations are going to uh, focus on national needs as, uh, as legitimate concerns of, uh, of, their, of, their, of their elected leaders. Beyond that, let's remember that while globalization could be could have was talked about in general terms as um, as borderless exchange of uh, good services uh, labor. Um, in practice, globalization was really about China. It was really about admitting China into the world economy, and I've spoken to the problems associated with that. We're not going to be able to have China. Uh, unproblematically in the world economy until Western firms operating in China understand that they can get a fair shake. And we're not going to get that until we have an independent judiciary in China. And we're not going to have an independent judiciary in China until the Chinese people get the free elections in the multi-party system they deserve. That is, as long as you have a dictatorship in China, globalization is going to be significantly impeded. Got it. Russell, thanks so much for the conversation today. It was really enlightening. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great. Our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Thursday, May 14th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with education experts Eric Hanishek and Margaret Raymond. They'll be talking about COVID-19 and the schools. Rick Hanishek is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's a leader in the economic analysis of educational issues. His research spans the impact on achievement of teacher quality, accountability, and class size reduction. 
Mackie Raymond is a distinguished research fellow at Hoover and the founder and director of the Center for Research and Education Outcomes at Stanford University. Credo, as it's called, uh, analyzes and evaluates programs that aim to improve outcomes for K through 12 students in public schools. It's also heavily relies upon policymakers at all levels of government to make those improvements. As all of you know, COVID-19 has had a dramatic impact on the education of our children, and I hope that you can join us for this important discussion. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you'll find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you all for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time. Please stay safe. Good day.